Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Well, it's great to see each of you here, and it's great to have each of you joining us uh, online. Uh, We're continuing our series today uh, in the book of Romans and uh, getting it right with God, and I've entitled our message today, When We Don't Like God. I want to dive into a serious question with you this morning. Do you have to like everything about God to be a Christian and follow him? Do you have to agree with what you read in God's word all the time, or What if there are things that you find hard to believe? What if there are things that you find hard to accept? What if you find about God and in his word things that you find hard to defend? Maybe a few things that at times even repulse you. And yet at the same time, with all of those struggles with God and his word, you recognize the unique history of the Old Testament screams that the God of the Bible is involved throughout history. You see the prophecies about Jesus that number in the hundreds, beginning with the virgin birth, which is prophesied on the third page of the Bible. You see the life of Christ, authenticated by his miracles. You see that he is divine, that he is deity. You read about his death, burial, and resurrection, which are actually, based on manuscript evidence and eyewitness evidence, some of the most authenticated events in the history of the ancient world. We have them in the scriptures. And so you believe they're true, yet you struggle with things you see about God in the Bible. So what do you do? Do you reject the truth if it doesn't feel right to you? Jesus' sermon in John chapter 6 really offended the crowds. So Jesus preached his sort of all-time low sermon when I believe he referenced the idea that people would need to eat his flesh, drink his blood to the Jewish culture that was particularly offensive including his disciples. At the end of that sermon, pretty much everyone dropped out. In other words, the Jesus movement went from maybe thousands of people in the crowds to right after that sermon, pretty much the 12. And Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And this is what they said to him, Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. In other words, We may not like you today. In fact, nobody likes you today. But from everything we've seen, from everything we've observed in you, you are miraculous, you're unique, and so we're following you. Figure skating analysts have expressed concern about the possibility of judge favoritism tainting the proceedings in the 2018 Winter Olympics. At the 2014 a winter games in Sochi, a scandal was generated after Russian skater Adelina, oh my, Adelina Sotnikova, probably close, sorry, Adelina, won the gold medal in the short program, beating out highly favored and leading skater Yuna Kim, who previously won the gold in 2010. The optics of Sotnikova skating off the ice and into the arms of a Russian judge who was married to the leader of the Russian Skating Federation sparked an outcry of unfair bias. Our jaws dropped, recalled U.S. skater Simon Schnapnir, who was watching in the rink in Sochi and other competitors. But at the same time, none of us are strangers to how skating works. 
You either deal with that or you don't. The subjective nature of the sport, combined with a unique system that allows judges to score athletes from their own countries, has created an environment rife with conflicts of interest, which is why figure skating has consistently been plagued by controversy. NBC News found that approximately one-fifth of the 164 judges eligible for the upcoming figure skating events are current or former leaders in their national skating federations, which gives them a natural incentive to inflate the scores of their own countrymen. This, in my opinion, is a clear conflict of interest, said Sonia. Uh, oh my goodness, these names are interesting. A skating judge at seven Olympics. But the rules do not forbid it. Now I talk about skating at the Olympics or boxing at the Olympics. There's some incredible judging ventures that have taken place in those two sports throughout history. One thing we do not want to question about God is his fairness. You don't, you don't want to end up reading the scriptures, reading about uh, the fall of man, how that affects you, reading about God's offer of salvation, then finding out at the end of the day the deck is stacked and you don't have a chance to get into heaven or you only have a chance to get into heaven if God sort of picked you for that. God's fairness is at risk in that debate. And today questioning God's fairness would be a lot like Jesus' sermon in John chapter 6. Well, Romans 9 through 11 deals with that subject. And I thought I would have to preach something in Romans 9 through 11 or you would notice that I skipped it, so we're going to deal with it. But it causes many to question the nature of God. So we're going to dig into that. And I want to deal with two issues. The micro issue of Romans 9 through 11 is actually about the future of Israel and Jewish salvation. The macro issue that I want to talk about is what do we do when we don't like God? I want to read with you Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. So this is a, a real transition here. Romans 8 sort of wraps up with a lot of very positive language. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And then Paul goes back and he wants to deal with the issue of his own nation, now remember, the Old Testament is all about Israel. Now the New Testament church is exploding and it's largely leaving the Jewish people behind. It's mostly Gentile. So Paul knows he has to address that. Romans chapter 9, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption as sons, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all children because they're Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, through whom the twins were, though, for through the twins... For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. 
just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he who says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it doesn't depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he, God, hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? In other words, how can God find fault with people if he acts against their free will at times? For who resists his will? Who can say no to God? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. Now, I realize the Apostle Paul likes to write in ways that are almost impossible to understand, but... I think you can see, as you listen to that passage, there's some pretty interesting statements which are behind one of the great controversies, theologically, in the Christian church. So I want to walk through this. This could be a a year-long study. It's not a simple issue. I'm not going to solve it for you today. If I could solve this uh, in a day, I I wouldn't be working here. Uh, But the reality is this has been a debate In Christendom for a long, long time, I'm not going to solve it, but I want to talk about this today. First, a couple of points from the passage. God is fulfilling, and Paul, the apostle, is defending God's plan. So the book of Romans is about man being restored to a right relationship with God. It's about getting it right with God, how we can become righteous, that the world is going to be restored, that we're being restored. And earlier in the book, it's clear that the good news about Jesus is available to all. This book is written to to Jews who were the people of God in the Old Testament, yet they needed Jesus. It's written to Gentiles who need Jesus. And Paul addresses both of those groups in the early chapters saying everyone's lost, everyone needs a righteousness that can come only through faith in Christ. Now remember, the Old Testament is entirely Jewish. Once you get to Genesis chapter 12, it's about Abraham and his descendants. And God was going to use the nation of Israel to reach the world. That's why in the Old Testament they're called a light to the Gentiles. So God's plan was, I'm going to take this little nation between three continents and all the major trade routes, and as they obey me, I'm going to supernaturally bless them. I mean, everything is going to turn up roses for them as they obey me. And all the nations of the world will come to know me through my relationship with that nation. But now, in Romans, and earlier in the book of Acts, the church has been born. And it's not Jewish. It's now a group of people from all nations called out to follow Jesus. The nature of the kingdom has radically shifted between the Old Testament and this moment when Paul wrote this book. 
It was quickly becoming a predominantly Gentile, not a Jewish movement. And the door of the gospel had swung wide open. But here's the problem. Now, we're looking back on this 2,000 years later. You've got to think like you're in the first century. And you've got your Old Testament, and that's it. And you're getting a few of these books from the apostles now. Here's the problem. It looks like God has lost control of salvation history. It looks like the Old Testament is not going to come true anymore. You say, why would you say that, Paul? Well, you need to divorce yourself from everything you know about the New Testament and just pretend you only have the Old Testament. Show me the church in the Old Testament. There are thousands of predictive statements. There are thousands of prophecies in the Old Testament about what's going to happen in the future. The whole Old Testament narrative looks like it's going to end when Jesus or the Messiah comes and he's going to reign on this earth. If you look at the Old Testament, you never would expect a Messiah to come, die, rise again, leave the planet, let it set for a couple thousand years, and then come back again. You cannot find that in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you're looking forward into the future and all you see is Messiah comes and it's sort of the end of the world where God reigns on earth. That's all you see. If you can find the Old Testament, the church, as we see it now, and this couple of thousand year pause in history, come to my office as we can show me. It's not there. So this is unexpected. It looks like God has sort of lost control of salvation history and that his people, the Israelites, and his plan for them as a nation have been set aside. Now there are other times in history, if you had limited knowledge of the future, that God has pivoted in significant ways that were unexpected. The fall. Let's pretend you don't have any of the Bible. You're Adam and Eve in the garden, and all you know is that God has created a couple of people. They've been made perfect. They're innocent. There is no sin in the world. What does your future look like? It's pretty bright. There's not going to be anything ever go wrong. There would be no physical death, theologians surmise. Without sin, there's no physical death because there's no decay of our bodies. So, when the fall takes place, you've got this massive change in the future. You go a few chapters later in, in Genesis and much later in Old Testament history, and you've got the flood. You didn't see that one coming, but the whole world was turned against God, and God recognized the only way to preserve any amount of faith on the earth is to just about start over with one righteous family, Noah and his family. There's a significant pivot in history that now we look back on, we don't view it that way, but if all you knew was Genesis 1 through 5 and you're the person of Noah, you didn't see that coming. A few chapters later, the Tower of Babel, when it seems that the whole world is united in some sort of idolatrous function, and God says, we're going to have to confuse this mess because nobody's ever going to come to faith. So he, he confused the languages, which led to people spreading out all over the planet, probably led to our different races, as you have sort of microevolution in the gene pool. We all end up looking differently. We didn't see that pivot coming. We certainly didn't see this one coming from an Old Testament perspective, the church. God is fulfilling and Paul is defending God's plan because there's been this radical shift. Second, and here's where it gets controversial, God's mercy is God's business. He can do whatever he wants. 
Now that's a paraphrase of what the Apostle Paul said here. Paul began by explaining this seeming pivot in God's plan, even if it's always in the mind of God, you would not have seen it from an Old Testament perspective. It had looked like Israel would forever be the center of salvation history, the center of what God would do in this world. But Paul then says basically that we should look at it a little differently now. That all of us as people of faith are descendants of Abraham, the father of faith. That it's Abraham's spiritual lineage more than a physical lineage. Now I want to say a couple things about that. Nobody would have read the Old Testament that way. And it's Paul's next point what he uses to justify this new kingdom direction that seems to put God on trial a bit. Talks about Rebecca, one of the great wives in the patriarchal history of Israel who had these two twins, Jacob and Esau. And God had to use one of them to be sort of the progenitor of the tribe that would become the nation of Israel. And before either of them was born... Before either of them was born, God said to Rebekah, the older is going to serve the younger. And then you read a little further, and you've got this other Old Testament quote about that where God says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And then you have this statement to Moses, I'll have mercy on who I have mercy, I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Has nothing to do with your behavior, what you're going to do for God, how you're going to respond ethically. And then Paul throws in another illustration about Pharaoh, where in the Old Testament it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So it looks like in this passage, in verses 10 to 18, that you just lost your free will. It looks like in this passage that it's possible that your eternal destiny was set for you by God. Looks like in this passage that a loving God who died for all of humanity just pulled out the rug from most of them. And they were just pawns on a great chessboard. It doesn't look good for God in my mind. Which is why I wanted to skip from chapter 8 right to chapter 12 in this series. Look at Paul's examples. Rebecca's twins, as I mentioned, Jacob and Esau. Before their birth, before any ethical choice, Paul makes this point, before anyone had any ability to work their way towards God's favor, to do anything good or bad, God says that Esau is going to end up serving his younger brother. Now what's so bizarre about that in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament you wanted to be the eldest son in a family. I mean, I mean, it was just a good place to be. You got double the inheritance and you're the head of the clan. You're in charge and you get twice the inheritance. It's a good place to be. I'm so glad we're not Old Testament Israelites right now because my brother Dan would be just raking it in, all right? But that was the way it was, and so it was unusual for this to be stated, the older is going to serve the younger. And then Paul reinforces this even more with another quote later in the Old Testament where it says, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Now commentators will say that's sort of a strong statement. It's a little hyperbole to make the point. God preferred Jacob. He loved Esau less. God didn't hate Esau. But it's, the point is being made theologically. There's an unusual preference going on here. Neither had any time to earn favor, and yet God chose to raise Jacob in an unusual way. 
The second example, Pharaoh. While Israel was in Egypt, they're enslaved. This is early in, in Israel's history. It's sort of like when they went from being a clan of maybe 50, 100, 200 people to being a nation of a couple of million. They were down in Egypt for about 400 years. Well, all that happened. And Moses is sent to free them. And God's miraculous plagues accompanied Moses' mission. You remember those stories where Moses takes his staff and he goes and talks to Pharaoh, demands that God let the people of Israel go. During those short days and weeks, Pharaoh sort of let them, then changed his mind, but Pharaoh is the villain. He's opposing God's will. He's opposing God's people. He's the king of Egypt, and because he's opposing God's people, He's opposing God's kingdom. He's opposing God's nation through whom Christ would come. And in one of those passages, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Think about that. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Is that fair? I read that. I don't like God a whole lot. I respect him. I know I'm not him, but I don't like him. Verses 18 to 23. So he has mercy on whom he desires. He hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, your argument is going to be, why does he still find fault then? How can God blame us for anything we do when we've got examples of God actively ask, acting against human freedom and will and choosing the way he seems to choose at times, how can God find fault with us because who can resist him? Verse 19, Paul says, on the contrary, who are you, O man, that answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? In other words, the clay's not going to go back to the potter and say, that's not fair. I disagree with Paul. That's exactly what we're doing here today. Of course we do that, which is why Paul is making the argument we shouldn't. Does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, Endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. That doesn't seem fair to us. How free am I? How free are we if God can do that? How does God's sovereignty, his control, interact with our free will? Do we even have free will? Is our life's course determined by God or by other forces beyond our control? If you're a movie lover, you may be able to think of a number of big screen characters who've struggled with these questions. This is actually the theme behind many blockbuster movies. There was Truman Burbank, played by Jim Carrey. The Truman Show told the story of his dawning realization that his entire life, including his job, his house, his marriage, his neighborhood, his friends, was constructed and orchestrated by TV producers who had turned his entire existence into a reality TV show viewed by millions of people around the world. When the penny finally drops, his mind is sent into turmoil and he becomes desperate to try to escape his phony existence. In other words, when he recognized his life wasn't real, it was all other stimuli creating everything around his existence. Couldn't deal with it. 
Then there was Neo in The Matrix, famously swallowing the red pill and having his eyes open to the reality that all human experience was just simulated reality. The truth was that human beings were simply an energy source for the machines which held them in slavery. Neo made it his quest to fight for freedom against these machines. Is that a relationship with God? Is he just pulling all the strings? A third film, The Adjustment Bureau, saw Congressman David Norris, played by Matt Damon. My wife was good friends with Matt Damon's mother. That was free. Bristling at the idea that his relationship with the only woman he's ever really loved must be ended because it's not part of the predetermined plan for his life. He won't stand for it and promptly decides to fight this destiny using nothing but the brute force of his own love-struck willpower. These are just a few of the films that explore issues of human freedom and determination. That it is such a common subject only serves to underline how deeply such themes resonate with us. The thought of being mere puppets in someone else's show or pawns being moved around some great chessboard is an outrage to our sense of human freedom and an outrage to our sense of fairness. So are we mere pawns on God's chessboard? Can God be just if that is true? Can there be a place called hell that many will go to, separated from God for eternity, if God is pulling all the strings and we are not free in any way? Can his offer of salvation to all even be legitimate? Is God even good in any way that we would recognize goodness? Does prayer matter? Does prayer change anything, or is everything fixed? Can God really micromanage the universe the way some of these illustrations seem to indicate and not be actually complicit in evil within his plan? Those are some good questions. Well, let's work few, uh, through a few of those things here. Third, God has a plan but how that plan takes place, its nature, the nature of God's plan is debatable. So now we're leaving this passage. We're going to talk about this issue a little bit. Both Old Testament and New Testament speak about the plan of God. If God is going to be God, he's going to have a plan. In the Hebrew mind, particularly in the Old Testament, the way they viewed everything, everything that happens is in the plan of God. That's the way they viewed everything. Everything that happens is in his plan. In fact, in the Old Testament, the way they would write, God is so sovereign that he is viewed as managing what we would call chance. Remember the book of Proverbs? You read the book of Proverbs that even the, the casting of the lots, the outcome is from the Lord. Remember those kinds of verses? In other words, if you're playing cards against your wife and you're consistently beating her, and you're consistently beating her. The Bible says that that was sort of predetermined by God. Sorry, Didi, I would like to take credit, but it looks like God is just doing that to you. Evil. In Job's mind, in the book of Job, when Job lost everything, I've referenced this many times, when Job lost everything and his wife is coming to him and saying, Job, <laughs> let's just kind of, why don't you curse God and die and let me take the insurance and move on. That's in the Hebrew. And Job says, even though we know the, that the difficulty in his life was coming from Satan, Job says, shall we, accept, or shall we expect good from the hand of God and not evil? Job viewed, like the Old Testament writers did, everything is coming from God's hand, even if God wasn't a first cause. All future events were viewed as in God's hand. The rise and fall in, of nations is viewed as in God's hand and control. Everything was viewed as coming from God. 
Here's the crux of the issue. For God to know the future means that God has to have some relationship with bringing it to pass. The question is, what is that relationship? All right? It's going to hurt your brain. Stay with me. For God to know the future means that he must have some relationship with bringing it to pass. What is that relationship? Now, I want to tell you three different options with three different theological perspectives behind them. All of them have some positive traits and all of them have some negative traits. Three views of the future. The Calvinistic view. The future is going to be a certain way because God wills it to be that way. In other words, God has determined what the future is going to be like, and he is going to make it come to pass. His will determines that. So if you're a Calvinist, you're going to emphasize God's sovereign plan, God's control over all things. Calvinists typically believe that God has elected certain people for salvation and others not for salvation. They believe that nobody's going to be able to blame God at the end, that they didn't have free will, but at the end of the day, they're going to be in the, the deck is stacked against you camp. The problem for many of us who are not Calvinists would be God's integrity. Do we really have a legitimate offer of salvation? Why would you have the tree in the Garden of Eden as if man had a choice, if man really doesn't have choice? Another view as it relates to God in the future would be Arminianism. Now these are just gross overgeneralizations. God foreknows the future to be a certain way because he operates outside of time. He sees it ahead of time. So here you've got an emphasis more on human freedom. God isn't willing the future into place. God simply sees everything because he operates outside of time. He sees the future. He's not necessarily willing it into place like the Calvinist would. He sees the future. He knows what's going to happen. He's not forcing it to happen. He operates outside of time. So really his foreknowledge is the emphasis in this view. The problem here is Arminians tend to overestimate man's goodness and man's ability to find God without God being involved in that process. A third view, open theism, has made a little bit of a resurrection through some popular leaders like Greg Boyd and other theologians. God determines or wills some of the future, but much of it is open based on free choice. So God determines will some of the future, much of it is open or unsettled. So open theists believe there is a settled future. God predicts certain things are going to take place, and when he does, you can bet on it, they're going to take place. Other things are in the unsettled part of the future. The problem is, a true open theist, I think there's some great points in open theism, the problem is, a true open theist would say God doesn't know the future. And he's constantly adapting to human freedom. He knows all the possibilities in the future, but because it's open, he doesn't know the future, and so obviously the Calvinists want to put those people on a stake and light them on fire. And this has been happening, if you were in Minnesota in the last couple of decades, you would have seen a great debate between a couple of people who both taught at the same seminary that didn't like each other because one was a Calvinist and one was an open theist. So what is true? Well, I can defend elements of all three very well from the Bible. So let's wrap this up a little bit. When we don't like God, ultimately we follow God because he is God, not because we find him acceptable. 
what if the Calvinists are right? I don't necessarily believe they are, but what if they are? What if, what if, what if things are so predetermined that we don't have the free will we think we have? What if we find out that God isn't what we thought he was? An example of that in some people's lives might be suffering. There, there you can find a preacher today on cable TV who will preach you the health and wealth gospel. I could give you a few names. That person would say, God doesn't want you to suffer in any way. God wants you to be healthy. God wants you to be wealthy. And if you're not, you just pray a little harder and have a little more faith and God is going to bless you. And probably even say it that way. God is going to bless you. He's going to bless you. He wants to bless you. That's just wrong. What I read in the New Testament is you follow Jesus, you're in trouble. You're going to die for him likely. And that was the early culture of Christianity. The health and wealth gospel is heresy. But boy, would I rather be in that camp if I could get it out of the scriptures. I, I love that camp. I want God to bless me. The biblical view, God doesn't necessarily want you to not suffer. God uses suffering to mold us. That's the biblical view. God uses suffering to mold us. That doesn't necessarily cause it. Most of suffering is going to come from other forces, but God will use, us, use it to create good character. But some people believe God ordained every painful experience you will ever have. That would be more the Calvinistic view. God ordained suffering in your life to make you like Jesus, which means if you're suffering, God is almost a source of it. Now, I don't believe that, but what if it's true? What if it really is true? Would you still be a Christian? You should be. There are reasons to not like God. I could give you five or ten. But he's still God. He's still God. Jesus is still the Son of God, authenticated by miracles, authenticated by his death, burial, and resurrection. It doesn't matter if we like everything in this book. There are many pages I want to tear out and tape over. It doesn't matter. He's God and I'm not. And that is incredibly hard for us in the 21st century to accept. And on that note, God would prefer a little trust. He has view, well, you have a point of view. Chapter 11, God, Paul kind of wraps up the, the whole issue of Israel's future and, and whether we question God about this and whether God is fair or not. And here's what, here's what he says. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Did any of you advise God when he was creating all this? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him? God owe us anything? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul is saying, when you look at what God has accomplished, even through this issue of Israel kind of falling away and the church being born and Gentiles coming to faith that otherwise would not have come to faith, he's saying, God did an incredible thing in reaching so many more people with this perceived pivot in history. I would hate to be God today. Well, actually, I'd love to be God because I'd like to settle some scores, but that would make me not a good God. Anyway, I would hate to be God today with all of the people running around the world who have to have everything their way before they can follow him. Who want to tear out 
a third of the Bible because it doesn't suit them and their view of fairness. I would hate to be God today. God would prefer a little trust. And it, we need to have a little humility in recognizing we judge God as though we are on his level and expect him to be a little bit different, to make us feel a little better. And I hate to remind us of this, but we're not God. And the reason I follow Jesus Christ is because he is the way, the truth, and the life. Not because I like everything in this book or everything about him or everything he said. Third, be a slave to context. When you're reading the scriptures, be a servant to context or your conclusions will not be accurate. Now, I want to show you how a theological premise has been completely twisted in this passage apart from what it was actually intended to teach. In Romans 9 through 11, Paul is making the argument that God can do whatever he wants. That salvation history is seemingly pivoted and God has the right to do that. He can harden hearts. He can do as he pleases with the realm of his attributes. He can show mercy on who he wants to show mercy, etc., etc. You know what Paul doesn't say in Romans chapter 9? He leaves out some things. Did you know that when God said, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, it's a preference issue? Do you know that if you go back to Genesis and look at that passage, God prophesied great things for Esau that he would be like the father of nations. God wouldn't, wasn't viewing Esau negatively. He was just not going to be the leader of Israel, the promised nation. Pharaoh hardened his own heart many times before God did it. If you read through the plagues, you'll see Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart. You get to about the seventh plague, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. See, Paul doesn't say that. And the passage in Romans 9 through 11 is actually teaching the opposite of what the Calvinists use it for. The passage is not about limiting salvation. It's about how God took the disobedience of Israel in rejecting Jesus as Messiah and exponentially blew open the door of the gospel to all of humanity through that. He took a crisis in salvation history when a human king and the son of God came to Israel and was largely rejected, not entirely, and he used that moment to blow open the doors of his grace and mercy to all people. Chapter 9, verse 23 and 24, that's what Paul said. He did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. The gospel went far, far, farther than it ever would have because of what happened historically. That's the point of Romans 9 through 11. We use it to limit salvation. The Bible teaches us about a sovereign, all-powerful God. I'm over. We're going to wrap up quickly here. Acts 17, 26 talks about the rise in nations all in God's hands. But the Bible also teaches us about a God who changes his mind in response to the choices we make. The Bible teaches us about a God who changes his mind in response to the choices we make. If I could get that next slide up there, please. The book of Jonah. God is going to destroy Nineveh. 
Jonah goes to preach to them. He doesn't want to go there. Jonah's an Old Testament racist. He hates the Ninevites. They're Assyrians. They've done nasty things. He's an Old Testament racist. He hates them. But he goes and preaches after he spent some time in a fish. Recognized that wasn't a good place to be either. So he's like, I'm going to obey God, I guess. I don't want to. And the whole city repents. And it says in chapter 3, verse 10, that God repented. That's the King James Version word. God repented. God changed his mind. He didn't do anything wrong. He just changed his mind. That's what repentance means. God repented because the Ninevites repented. You'll find that over and over and over in the Bible. In, in the Old Testament covenant, if you do this, then I will do this. If you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I'll remove that blessing. blessing. There's all kinds of if-then promises in the Bible. The people who believe everything is fixed and nothing can be changed would say that God repenting was just, he knew he was going to do it. It's not really real. It's just an anthropomorphism or an anthropopathism. God knew what was going to happen, so then he's just, it's not really that anything changed. I don't know that I can get my brain around this, but I'm not sure that's true. Finally, make choices as if we make a difference. Because we do. I don't believe we're all pawns on God's chessboard. I believe we're free to some degree, though flawed with a human nature that's sinful. That God still lays choices before us every day. And if the commands of the scripture and those choices have any validity, we should live our lives making choices as if we make a difference. And as if we, with God's help, can change the world. God, we thank you for your word. We know this is, a, this is a tough topic and it calls into question a lot of things about you that we don't want to really call into question because you are a good God. Such a good God that you were willing to give your son to die for us, to pay the penalty for our sins and that offer seems open to all. When we look in your word, we see some aspects of who you are and the way that you move history, the way you seem to control things at times and, and we're a little shocked at times. But we also know that you are God and we are not. You're above us. We're the clay, you're the potter. Help us, most importantly, to recognize that when we do not understand everything, which we do not, that you are still the truth. And through Jesus, the only way to a right relationship with you. Help us to follow you, even in the midst of the difficulties and the things we don't understand. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to BethanyChapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.